A series of talks entitled Great Writers Inspire would be, for me, incomplete without the poet and painter William Blake, who prized inspiration above pretty much everything and claimed that the nature of my work is visionary or imaginative. He also said, this world of imagination is the world of eternity. Blake, for me, is the most exciting and radical writer in English literature. I'm currently writing a book on Blake, myth and the Enlightenment, and I'm looking at how his work stages a struggle between the very modern desire to banish repressive superstitions and a more unfamiliar enthusiasm for the visionary powers of prophecy, myth and the imagination. This tension in Blake's thought is what, for me, makes his work so extraordinary. In 1855, Blake's one-time follower, the painter John Linnell, described him as a saint amongst the infidels and a heretic with the orthodox. And this speaks to the mischievous and complicated ways in which Blake thought. But far from being an eccentric lunatic, which many of his own time and of the 19th century took him for, Blake was a dynamic thinker with a philosophical depth to his conviction that the way human beings perceive their world is not uniform or fixed, but in fact is a continually creative process. Blake constantly reminded his audience of the power of the imagination and challenged them to liberate themselves from passive and habitual and socially imposed ways of perceiving reality, which he described in his poem London as the mind-forged manacles. Writing in 1799 to perhaps a reasonably uh, confused clergyman who complained about his paintings, Blake affirmed that this world is a world of imagination and vision. I see everything I paint in this world. But not everybody sees alike. To the eyes of a miser, a guinea is more beautiful than the sun. And a bag worn with the use of money has more beautiful proportions than a vine filled with grapes. He went on, To me this world is all one continued vision of fancy and imagination, and I feel flattered when I am told so. Inspiration and imagination were the very grounds of human existence for Blake. This aim to shake his readers' perceptions of the world around them speaks of the tumultuous times in which Blake lived. He was born in 1757 in Broad Street, Soho, in London, and he was largely self-educated, but a very voracious and combative reader, as well as a skilled painter and engraver, for he was trained at the Royal Academy of Art. Blake was resident in London for almost all of his life, uh, except for a very small period in which uh, he resided in the village of Feltham by the sea in Sussex. He experienced the momentous impact on Britain of the American Revolution and the war following, and the French Revolution and the long series of revolutionary wars in Europe. He witnessed also the onset of the Industrial Revolution at first hand through his work as a reproductive engraver and working for the book trade. With, revolu- uh, with the assistance of his devoted wife, Catherine, he printed his own works in an innovative medium he called illuminated printing, combining his own visionary poetry and images in beautiful, individually coloured, unique books. In his famous Songs of Innocence and of Experience, his uh, prophetic works such as America and Europe and his later extremely confusing epics, Milton and Jerusalem, Blake produced a spiritual history of humanity from the very beginnings of of the human fall to the millennium and the end of history, as well as charting the events of his own time from a visionary perspective. Blake wrote in an apocalyptic religious idiom that harks back to the seers of the Old Testament. Prophets uh, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and St. John the Divine, but also people who are influenced by these writers, 
in particular, the 17th century Republican and poet John Milton. Yet Blake also found himself within an incredibly progressive and modern London culture. Between 1780 and 1801, he worked as an engraver, uh, providing illustrations for books published by the Unitarian publisher Joseph Johnson, who was based in St. Paul's Churchyard in the city of London. Unitarianism was a rational form of Protestantism, which repudiated repudiated the uh, the Trinity and the divinity of Christ. Johnson published some of the most contentious books of the 1780s and 1790s, notably the controversial theology of Joseph Priestley, who we now know better as a pioneer and chemist, and the works of the doctor and polymath Erasmus Darwin, whose 1794 work, Zoonomia, described the theory of developmental evolution which his grandson Charles Darwin would become more famous for revising. Erasmus Darwin's poem, The Botanic Garden of 1791, especially the section on the loves of the plants, was hugely successful and delighted and scandalised contemporary readers with its ingenious and licentious descriptions of the unorthodox sexual lives of humanised plants. Blake produced engravings for Johnson to accompany Darwin's text and his own depictions of human-like plants in the Book of Thel and Songs of Innocence and of Experience suggest Darwin's poem was a surprising inspiration for his great visions of nature. In 1791, Johnson also employed Blake to illustrate a book of tales for children entitled Original Stories from Real Life by Mary Wollstonecraft. Wollstonecraft is most famous for her 1792 feminist polemic A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which argues forcefully that women are naturally men's mental equals and only left inferior as a result of poor education and the prejudices of contemporary European society. Blake seems to have sympathised with the restricted lot of women with the Book of Thel in 1789 and Visions of the Daughters of Albion in 1793, both taking an unusual interest in female freedom. His later, long mythological poems are extremely disturbing and their powerful depictions of sexual conflict defy any easy categorisations as feminist or misogynist. Johnson's circle was also at the vanguard of political radicalism. In 1790, Wollstonecraft was one of the earliest British defenders of the French Revolution in her A Vindication of the Rights of Men which Joseph Johnson published. He was also originally to have been the publisher of Thomas Paine's Radical Rights of Man in 1791, but at the last minute, fearing prosecution, he passed the book on to another publisher. Nevertheless, before fleeing England for France, because charges of sedition would have led to his execution, Thomas Paine was a regular part of Johnson's circle, mixing with politicians, campaigners, uh, abolitionists, educators and poets who met under his roof. It's not clear whether Blake met all these writers, and much of his writing suggests he would have, I think, been at odds with their very confident and enthusiastic embrace of the power of reason. But his work for Johnson brought him into contact with their books and with some of the most exciting and cutting-edge ideas of his time. This environment of speculative freethinkers on religion and most other matters would have been congenial and seems to have helped inspire Blake's works. Blake's extraordinary satirical masterpiece, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which he created and printed somewhere between 1790 and 1793, boldly challenges the political, religious and sexual norms of his day. The text originated in a parody of the Swedish mystical Emanuel Swedenborg, whose books Blake had been avidly reading in previous years, but increasingly uh, Blake began to be disappointed with some of the orthodoxies he felt were repeated in these books. Inspired by the outbreak of the French Revolution and seemingly by the free thought of the circle around Joseph Johnson, Blake chose to expand the scope of his text 
opening up his rejection of Swedenborg to attack orthodox religion and morality and political repression and passive conformity, all of which he believed sapped humans of their eternal energies. The almost hallucinatory imaginative and physical energy radiating throughout the book makes even the most ordinary perceptions open out into the infinite. How do you know that every bird that cuts the airy way is an immense world of delight closed by your senses five? To achieve this result, Blake's text is fragmentary and accompanied by bizarre and incomprehensible and often inexplicable images. The bewildering form of the book helps to jar readers out of their ordinary and passive thought patterns. Chief among these are the ordinary categories of human life. Blake redefines fundamentally the separate categories of good and evil, preferring a dynamic clash between these countries. At the outset of the book, he asserts, without countries is no progression. Attraction and repulsion, reason and energy, love and hate are necessary to human existence. From these countries spring what the religious call good and evil. Good is the passive that obeys reason, Evil is the active, springing from energy. Good is heaven, evil is hell. This is immediately followed by the voice of the devil, who denies the separation of the body and the soul and insists that energy is the only life and from the body and reason is the bound or outward circumference of energy and, most resonantly, energy is eternal delight. The profane and the divine realms are pushed together and they dynamically combine. Blake was a passionate Christian, but a startlingly unorthodox kind. He criticised priests in the established church, adopting, adopting a combative, democratic faith. Under hierarchical religion, he believed that men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast. They originate with the imagination, as shown at the top of this plate, in the way that humans perceive the natural world, but through a process of repression, these different kinds of religious ideas and visions get comprised compressed into one single deity pictured at the bottom, who Blake would call Urizen or Nobo Daddy. Blake, um, Blake's Jesus is active on the side of the devils, a revolutionary who threatens the institutions, laws, and God of the Orthodox, and the devil argues that no virtue can exist without breaking the Ten Commandments. Jesus was all virtue and acted from impulse, not from rules. In recent protests at St. Paul's Cathedral, I think Blake's Jesus would have been among the tents. In one section, Blake's favourite Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, visit the narrator for dinner, and he questions them about their visions. Isaiah's answer tells us that Blake saw prophecy not as otherworldly mysticism, but as philosophical and political power. I saw no God, nor heard any in a finite organical perception, but my senses discovered the infinite in everything. Like Blake, Isaiah is convinced that the voice of honest indignation is the voice of God, and he cared not for the consequences, but wrote. By contrast to such vital spiritual energy, the representatives of orthodox religion, the angels whom the narrator encounters, are hypocritical, haughty, and repressed. The narrator delights in converting one of them to be a devil. We often read the Bible together in its infernal or diabolical sense, and he promises to give the world the Bible of hell, which may be comprised by Blake's dark and foreboding long poems from the Book of Urizen onwards. As a literary critic, too, Blake is amazingly modern. In The Marriage, the voice of the devil utters the famous pronouncement that in the great epic poem, Paradise Lost, Milton wrote in fetters when he wrote of angels and God and at liberty when of devils and hell because he was a true poet and of the devil's party without knowing it. 
Blake's independent insight comes long before psychoanalytic literary criticism, and his whole text is a dazzling and disorientating tour de force, challenging the reader to reimagine their place in the world. Thank you.